ไห้เนียงก็ทำไมสไรปอนายสไรยายโจจำบันดำนาบังบานพดำพดัง Welcome to Footnotes, created by Francis Garrett, a professor of Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto. Footnotes is a series of short lectures on research in the field. Each episode features an article or book chapter from an academic book. We aim to make topics in Buddhist studies research freely accessible to students and the public. This is Francis. Today I'm going to say a bit about Chapter Four of a book by Suzanne Mrazik called "Virtuous Bodies: The Physical Dimensions of Morality in Buddhist Ethics." The chapter is called "Virtuous Bodies: A Physio-Moral Discourse on Bodies." Our music today is performed by singer and Buddhist studies scholar Trent Walker. Trent spent many years learning to sing traditional Buddhist songs in Cambodia, and a collection of his work can be found on the Stirring and Stilling website. The song we're listening to today is called "Maya's Guidance for Gotami." The song focuses on the relationship between the Buddha's mother Maya and her sister Mahaprajapati Gotami, who later became the first Buddhist nun. The song is in the voice of Maya on her deathbed as she asks her sister to take care of the seven-year-old Buddha when she dies. You can read the lyrics in English translation on the Stirring and Stilling website. Before we get into Chapter Four, I'd like to point out a few things that are covered in the introduction to the book. This is a book about Buddhist ethics, and what the author wanted to do that's a bit different than other books on the topic is focus on the body. Mostly, when people write about Buddhist ethics, they talk about how Buddhism fosters the creation of virtuous emotional or cognitive qualities. But what do we learn about Buddhist ethics if we think about the body, or the cultivation of good physical qualities, according to Buddhism? As Mrazik says in the introduction, morality and the body are totally connected in Buddhism. She notes that Buddhist literature is replete with descriptions of living bodies who literally stink with sin. Are disfigured by vices and conversely are perfumed or adorned with merit and virtues. And so, Buddhist practice is just as much about cultivating physiological transformation as it is about cultivating psychological transformation. You might be interested in reading the introduction to this book because Suzanne Mrazik gives us a nice overview of how Buddhist ethics has been studied. And why the body has so often been neglected as a way of studying ethics. In her book, she's going to do just this: focus on the body through a detailed study of a Sanskrit Buddhist text called the Compendium of Training, which was written by a seventh or eighth-century Buddhist monk named Shantideva. 
The text is about the training of bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are beings in Mahayana Buddhism who are seeking liberation, specifically in order to become able to liberate other suffering beings. As Mrazik puts it, bodhisattvas represent one of the highest ethical ideals in Buddhist traditions. The compendium of training prescribes the kinds of practices that bodhisattvas are supposed to do, like studying texts, meditation practices, or ethical conduct. And these practices are said to manifest in certain features, postures, and movements of bodies that are considered virtuous. Since bodhisattvas' ultimate goals are to be able to help other beings toward enlightenment, this also means that certain types of bodies can have transformative effects on other beings. For example, in Buddhist stories, animals who eat bodhisattva corpses are reborn as gods in heaven. Humans who touch the living bodies of bodhisattvas are no longer tormented by lust, anger, or delusion. In her introduction, Mrazik points out that there are two attitudes toward bodies in early Indian Buddhism. One is a negative discourse, where bodies are impermanent, foul, and without intrinsic or external essence, and she calls this an ascetic discourse. The other reflects a more positive attitude that she calls a physiomoral discourse, where bodies and morality are linked. Now, some of you may already have been thinking of this, but although from a Buddhist point of view, linking certain types of bodies with virtue may be more positive than alternative Buddhist views, from our point of view today, it's totally problematic to rank bodily differences in this hierarchical way. We'll come back to this, which is also something that Mrazik brings up. But briefly, in her introduction, she says she's going to be drawing on the work of feminist philosopher Elizabeth Gross, who recommends that we think about human beings as fundamentally embodied. That is, we do all have bodies, firstly, and secondly, that we have different kinds of bodies. So bodily difference is actually essential to understand what it is to be human. This might seem kind of obvious, but it's actually very often ignored in theorizing about Buddhism. Another method Mrazik draws on in this book is referred to as the ethics of care and responsibility, which, as she says, allows us to focus our attention away from the individual and more onto the community, as well as to take note of how we do not become virtuous by ourselves, but we're made virtuous through relationships with others. Let's now take a look at the fourth chapter of Suzanne Mrazek's book, which is called Virtuous Bodies, a Physio-Moral Discourse on Bodies. A Buddhist body is not an ordinary body. It's said to have 32 marks, or special signs, and these occur as the result of many lifetimes of virtuous practice in the Buddha's previous lives as a bodhisattva. As Mrazek says, bodies are rarely morally neutral in Buddhist literature. This is not an attitude particular to Buddhism, but rather it's part of many South Asian traditions, many of which say that bodies are made beautiful because of virtuous action. This attitude toward embodiment is what Morozik calls the physiomoral discourse in Buddhism. This discourse is saying two things. 
One, that bodies are the way they are as a result of moral action. And two, that bodies are the very condition for morality. As Morozik says, the kind of body a person has can actually enable or disable particular kinds of moral agency, according to Buddhism. We can go through each of these things, starting with how morally superior beings have physically superior bodies. For example, listen here to a list of what are called the 32 marks of the Buddha's body, which are signs that prove that he's enlightened. A great person has firmly placed feet and walks evenly upon the ground. Upon the soles of his feet there are thousand spoked wheels with hubs and rims complete in every aspect. The great person has long fingers. He has broad heels. His hands and feet are soft and delicate. His hands and feet are web-like. His ankles are hidden. His legs are those like an antelope. His body does not bend. His penis is sheathed. He is round like a banyan tree. He has a halo extending as far as his arms can reach. His body hairs point upward. His body hairs are separate. Each separate hair grows in its own pore and is blue, curled and turned to the right. His skin is golden. His skin is smooth because of the smoothness dust and dirt do not stick to his body. His body has seven protuberances. Two on his hands, two on his feet, two on his shoulder, and one on his neck. The front of his body is like a lion. His torso is well-rounded. He has no hollow between his shoulders. He is straight and tall. He has forty even teeth. His teeth have no spaces between them. His teeth are very white. His jaw is like a lion's. His tongue is long and thin. Because of the length of this tongue, when he sticks it out, he covers his entire face up to the edges of his hair. He has obtained an excellent sense of taste. His voice is like Brahma. It speaks as delicately as the Kalavinka birds. His voice is like the sound of a magical drum. His eyes are intensely blue and his eyelashes are like a cow's. His head is like a turban. The hair growing between his eyebrows is white, soft, and turned to the right. So regardless of whether you think that these are the signs of a super attractive man, apparently these were considered by some to be the signs of superior physical appearance, at least in some way. And these are also then linked to the Buddha's superior psychological and cognitive capacity. All of these signs are there as the karmic effect of his countless lifetimes of good deeds. But it's not just Buddhas. All living beings are said to have the bodies they have as a result of the karmic effects of past deeds. Good karma produces superior bodies, according to this tradition. Remember that when we talk about bodies, we're not only talking about human bodies, but rather the whole range of rebirths that are possible. So worm bodies or insect bodies in the animal realms, or the bodies of hell beings in the hell realms, these are the options that we all have. 
Rebirth as an animal, a hungry ghost, or hell being is definitely bad. But virtuous bodies, on the other hand, are beautiful in form, voice, and scent. They are physically strong and free of illness. For most of Buddhist literature, they're also male. Although there are female bodhisattvas and Buddhas, in general, the female rebirth is portrayed in Buddhism as a negative thing. There are also references in early Buddhist texts to people who are neither female nor male. Virtuous bodies are also marked by being born into a wealthy family of high caste in early Buddhism. And virtuous bodies, at least the bodies of monks, have special ways of moving. They're graceful and serene. So one thing you can see here, Mrazik points out, is that this kind of discourse describes all different kinds of bodies, and many of these descriptions are quite detailed. Not only are bodies the result of past karmic action, they're also the condition for certain kinds of moral action. So as bodhisattvas progress closer and closer to the lifetime in which they could become a Buddha, their bodies will have more and more of the characteristics that make this possible. Usually this means that they'll be male, but also various kinds of what we would call disabilities are excluded from the bodhisattva rebirth possibilities. This means that certain kinds of bodies are most easily able to reach Buddhahood. In addition, though, these kinds of virtuous bodies are also said to have beneficial effects on other living beings. For this reason, this is important to monks also, and so rules on comportment and etiquette are a big part of the monastic rules or the vinaya. For example, listen to some of these monastic rules from the Vinaya. We will not put on the robes raised too high. We will not put on the robe too low. We will go amongst the houses well restrained, with the body well covered. With little noise, looking at the ground. We will not go amongst the houses jumping, with arms akimbo, shaking the body, shaking the head. We will not sit down on a seat amidst the houses pulling up the feet, stretching out the feet, exposing the genitals. We will not eat alms food in overly large mouthfuls. We will not open the mouth when the morsel has not arrived. We will not utter inarticulate speech with a morsel in the mouth. We will not eat alms, food stuffing the cheeks, making a smacking noise with the tongue. Because bodhisattvas and even monks also are meant to be virtuous to even look at, they become objects of devotion for laypeople. And to revere an important object of devotion is for the layperson or the devotee itself an act that produces good karma for them, for the devotee. Now let's turn to the final chapter of Suzanne Mrazik's book, Chapter 6, called Revisioning Virtue, where she's going to help us think about some of the ethical implications for us today of these medieval Indian Buddhist ideas about embodiment. What's really great about this book, I think, is how it emphasizes the physical side of Buddhist ethics. Ethics in this book is about developing the entire complex of body, feelings, and thoughts. 
the Bodhisattva's project is to cultivate their whole bodied being. And also, the Bodhisattva's well-practiced body can then be a source of moral development for other beings too. In Buddhism, we use the metaphor of ripening to describe this. The Bodhisattva's job is to ripen living beings, meaning to transform them into virtuous beings, physically or spiritually. What counts as virtuous, then, has both cognitive and physical aspects. As Mrazik puts it, these desirable Buddhist virtues are both affective or emotional and cognitive aspects of a person's psyche, as well as the features, postures, and movements of a person's body. In other chapters of this book, Suzanne Mrazik also talks about what she calls the ascetic discourses of the body in Buddhism. These are those descriptions of the body as impermanent, foul, and without any intrinsic or eternal essence. She suggests that these kinds of descriptions are mainly found in the context of practices that are meant to eradicate male sexual desire for women. And so they're aimed mainly at celibate monks, in other words. Overall, in most Buddhist texts, there's a strong preference for male bodies as the ideal, Suzanne Mrazik's work shows. From today's vantage point, it's easy to be dismissive of such a position. But Mrazik asks us in this last chapter of her book to think about whether or how we might find some useful resources in these medieval texts on embodiment. To do this, she goes through a discussion of hermeneutic theory. Hermeneutics is simply about how we interpret and understand something. Inspired by the philosopher Ricoeur, she says she's going to use a combination of a hermeneutics of recovery and a hermeneutics of suspicion. With a hermeneutics of recovery, that is, an approach to interpreting or understanding a text with a desire to recover something useful, we should read a text expecting it to say something meaningful to us. With a hermeneutics of suspicion, we might by contrast feel suspicious of a text message and want to speak back to the text, disagreeing with it, for example. I mean, like to critique it, maybe, or to say to it what we really think about it. Mrazik says that by taking these two approaches simultaneously with a given text, we can see that text as a living argument. Like it's not just an old dead thing that refers only to a distant past, but it's also something that we can listen to and interact with today. The problem for us today with the medieval Buddhist text examined in this book is that it makes a clear hierarchical ranking of bodies. In no uncertain terms in this tradition, some bodies are just better than others. Male bodies are better than female bodies, high-status bodies are better than low-status bodies, humans are better than animals. Male bodhisattva bodies help ripen other beings toward enlightenment. Female bodies don't do that. Although Mahayana Buddhism is often said to be more egalitarian than earlier forms of Indian Buddhism, this perspective on embodiment really puts that into question. Although there are some aspects of Mahayana Buddhism 
that can make it sound sort of egalitarian, and Mrozik summarizes some of these in this chapter. In reality, at least when we look at these medieval texts on ethics and the bodhisattva ideal, non-male, non-able-bodied bodies were strongly disfavored. As part of her effort to interact with these medieval traditions, though, as living arguments, one thing that Suzanne Mrozik does here at the end of the book is to suggest that there's something valuable about a tradition that values difference rather than commonality. So think about this for a minute. In the text, she studies in this book, as we've seen, many different kinds of bodies are recognized. And she suggests that an ethical theory that starts with the truth of difference, rather than suggesting that we focus on commonality, can be really important. As she explains it, some ethical theorists say that a variety of human differences, such as sex, race, ethnicity, class, sexuality, and physiognomy, are what shape our identities and experiences. If, by contrast, we were to develop an ethical theory that starts from commonality, this might kind of implicitly presume a single subject, and that might possibly be a white male subject, and it could disregard the reality of differences that actually shape who we really are. There's no such thing as a generic body, Mrazik says. There are only specific kinds of bodied beings. In the case of the Compendium of Training, this text on bodhisattva ethics that is studied in this book, the bodied being of choice is a male monastic bodhisattva. And so here we can practice hermeneutics of suspicion and question how limiting this kind of virtue might be for us now. But, and this is how Suzanne Mrazik ends her book, this can also then lead us to deeply think more about what virtue looks like for us now. And we can also then take inspiration from this medieval model and think about how the bodied beings around us, just as they are, may themselves be keys to our own ripening. I ask you now to receive, little sister, forgive me. Since giving birth to my son, only seven days have passed my life with As I pass on to the next world, what can I do? This episode of Footnotes was produced by Francis Garrett with sound editing by Jesse Witte. The Footnotes series was created at the University of Toronto in Canada with support from eCampus Ontario.